I've called the sermon, the Sermon on the Cross. Not because it's my sermon on the cross. It's Jesus' sermon on the cross. And it's not a sermon that he taught about the cross. No, I, I mean his sermon on the cross. There was a sermon on the mount, sermon on the plain. There was a sermon in the upper room. There was a sermon on the cross. Jesus never stopped reaching Never stop teaching, never stop pointing to the eternal plan of God. We started a journey 40 weeks ago through the Old Testament, and we first saw evidence of this planned event on the hill of Golgotha in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing the impact of the rebellion of the human race on Adam and on Eve. But then we see that first glimpse of hope, a first look into the eternal plan of God when he said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the enemy of God. From that moment on, everything is built to this pinnacle, the hill of the skull. And Jesus preaches. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. There are seven things that Jesus says on the cross But Matthew chooses in his brief account of the crucifixion to only mention one, only one, and it's the sermon. It's a short sermon, but it's the sermon. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's begin reading at verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his cloths by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you really are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. 
The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Volumes, tens of thousands of pages have been written about these hours. We're not going to cover it today. There's so much that can be said. But our goal today is to see this in the context of the grand story. And the reason why Matthew is the perfect choice for this is because he has a very specific narrative, very specific facts around the death of Christ that suit the purpose for which he writes. Matthew is writing to Jewish people. Throughout his entire gospel, he's constantly coming back to the Old Testament to show how Jesus is a fulfillment of all that God had purposed to do through Israel, through Abraham. He's constantly going back. The reason why Matthew chooses just one thing that Jesus said is because it fits so beautifully. What Matthew has written here is a beautiful little narrative. It's beautiful. I'm gonna set it up three ways. We're gonna talk about the scene, then the sermon, and then the scandal. The scandal that came out of this event. Let's set the scene first. The first thing we see, of course, is that Jesus has been crucified. Horrific death after horrible beating to the point where the Bible says we would not even be able to tell he was actually a human being. So horrific was the beating. Finally, they take him and they impale him to a cross. His hands, somewhere around here, pierced through. His feet gathered pushed down, pierced through, impaled to the cross. It's important that you remember that image because we're going to come back to it in just a few minutes. So Jesus was crucified. A placard was put above Jesus' head that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. They also crucified two robbers, one to his right and one to his left. Now, when the Romans executed someone by crucifixion, they always put a note on the cross speaking of their crimes. So it wasn't unique that Jesus had a note above his head. On top of the thieves' heads would have been a note saying, robbers, thieves, they're dying for their crimes. Sometimes Christians, without understanding the actual uh, pattern of crucifixion, look at that as maybe Pilate giving a little credit to Jesus. No, that's not the point. That was his crime as Rome saw it. He was a threat to Roman peace. And the last thing they needed was a troublemaker claiming a throne that Rome had worked very hard to keep control of. And so this was his crime. So the first thing we understand is that Jesus was crucified, pierced, feet and hands, his crimes put on the cross with him. We see three characters. We see the soldiers. That's verses 35 through 36. Guys that are just doing their job. They are the executioners. They impale them to the cross. They offer them wine with gall mixed in it. They cast lots. Why waste good clothing? They sit back and watch and wait for the death to occur. These soldiers, these who have done these everyday things for them, they are not emotionally connected to what's taking place. Unimpassioned bystanders doing to Jesus what they've done to probably hundreds, perhaps thousands of other criminals. But then you have the Jewish leaders who have a stake in this and are spitting out all of the hatred that is built up about Jesus, mocking him, 
The fact that Matthew makes a point to say that the Jewish leaders acted in the exact same way as the two criminals at his side, I think is an important note because basically the way the Jewish leaders are operating is as thugs, acting as common low-class criminals. So you have the soldiers who are unimpassioned observers. You have the enemies of God that are engaged in, in horrific ridicule. And then the third character I want you to see here is God himself. See, God twice show up here. The first is when we see the darkness coming. Let's just read that passage again. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Now, this is the middle of the day. This was a spiritual darkness. Some skeptics have looked at it and said, well, it had to have taken place during an eclipse. But here's the problem. Passovers never occurred except after the new moon, and eclipses never happened during a new moon. This was a supernatural bringing in the middle of the day of a great darkness like the darkness that was brought on Egypt. And the children of Israel know exactly what God's darkness means. There's an amazing prophecy from the prophet Amos in chapter 8. Let me just read this and, and tell me if this isn't a snapshot looking forward to this moment. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning. They were celebrating the highest religious feast of all. Let me read it again. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning. I will make that time like mourning for the only sun. What we're seeing is God's only son dying for the world. And we're seeing the father mourn over the death of his son as prophet Amos saw. But more than that, the darkness of God is God's wrath and God's judgment. This is the scene. Now, now let's look at the sermon. One thing Matthew says, he recalls that Jesus says, he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said it in what would have been his everyday tongue, Aramaic. This statement shows us two things as a simple sermon. One, it reveals to you and I today the historic fact of the crucifixion. And then secondly, it explains the why of the crucifixion, why it's happening, which was the real, real intent of what Jesus said. But let's look at the first. It reveals the historic nature of it. Let me explain why. The, the word cried out literally means shrieked or screamed. The translators are trying to give Jesus a little dignity here. But the listener would have heard someone who was crying out from the depths of desperation. This is a man who has been utterly broken. He has given up. Maybe he's cracked up. It's a horrific wail that comes out of Jesus. There's two reasons why I think Matthew puts it in the original tongue. The first is that he actually spoke in Aramaic, and Matthew wants to help you hear and experience exactly what it is he heard. It's as though Matthew was saying what he said, and the way he screamed it still stays in my ear. When I think of that day, my Savior, utterly broken, 
shrieking, wailing from his innermost being, the one who I always saw all the strength of eternity, crying out to God. Matthew wants you to understand and hear it and listen to it exactly the way he heard it. And in that, we recognize this is a historical event. This is a historical event. And think about it just from a logical perspective. Even skeptics would look at a situation like this and say, if you were going to write a propaganda piece, <laughs> a promotional brochure for your religious leader, your last scene of them would not be so scandalous. A man completely broken, abandoned, shattered, Indeed, most biographers, when they talk about the death of such great world, especially religious leaders, speak about them ending with dignity, some wise statement, some grand accomplishment before the end. No, Matthew's saying, this happened. Those are the words I heard. And this was my Jesus who was screaming them. It is that this happened that we first see. But the second is, why the cross? Why the cross? Now, if you've been around uh, Journey for the last Lenten and Easter seasons, you've heard me teach on this very verse. And whereas many people just look at it as, as Jesus crying out to God, we know that Jesus was actually quoting Scripture. So even though he's at his end, even though he's in this heart-wrenching moment, he's not cracked up. He is focused. He's quoting the 22nd Psalm, the first verse of the 22nd Psalm. And I want you to turn there with me. This is the Psalm of David. Very often, David's Psalms are also Messianic Psalms. But there's usually a dual meaning. David has experienced something horrific, and he writes about it. And then we see centuries later that that also was meant to be a foreshadowing of Christ. But in this passage, there's just no way it resembles an actual experience from David. This is a haunting psalm when you go to it from the scene that we have just explored in detail. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out, but you do not answer. Now listen to these startling images that the psalmist writes. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Did not he cry, I thirst. A band of evil men has encircled me. Listen, they have pierced my hands and my feet. This psalm was written centuries before the Romans even conceived of execution by the cross. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Listen, they divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. 
you cannot listen to what Jesus says on the cross and not recognize that he is telling us something. He's not just crying out to God. This is what Jesus has done his whole ministry. What had he just done the night before? He had stood there in front of the Passover table and held the elements that had been precious to these people since the original Passover and said, look, this is all me. (laughs) The lamb is me. The cup is my blood. The bread is my body. It all points to me. After Jesus is resurrected, and he's on the road to Emmaus, and he talks with the two believers who were confused, what do we see him doing? It says that he went through all of the scriptures, pointing to the things about himself. This is Jesus being Jesus, in excruciating pain, in anguish from God. This is Jesus saying, don't you see this? Way back then, God inspired David through the Holy Spirit to talk about my execution. David wasn't executed, and Jesus is saying, I'm the one being punished. I'm the one being executed. I'm the one being rejected by God. And it was in the plan from the very beginning. Startling, isn't it, when you come across that? It brings such focus to this moment, such meaning to it, One sentence, perhaps the most powerful sermon of all. The darkness underscores what's taking place. That's the darkness of God's judgment. Paul, in Colossians 2, when he looks back on what has happened, that Christ has taken our punishment, he uses this phrase, that God took those things and he nailed them to the cross. Now, without understanding what I've just explained to you, you might think that it was Jesus himself in being nailed to the cross was our sin, but what Paul is doing is using the illustration that the crucifixion provides to explain what really happened legally. In the same way, Rome put a sign nailed to the cross about the crimes for which the person was being executed. Paul is saying God had a sign God had a sign. It was a sign that held your sins and my sins and the sins of everyone. And that's what was nailed to the tree with Jesus because it was those sins that he was punished for. That's the sermon. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has been rejected by the Father. That's the punishment of sin. I'm taking that on for everybody. In 2 Thessalonians, when Paul describes the punishment that is ours because of sin, he describes it as separation from God. That's hell. Often people ask me, do you believe in like hell with fire and brimstone? My my honest answer is, I, I hope not. I hope not. Yeah, the Bible uses that description, but there's room to look at that and believe that it is an analogy. I I don't know if the physical reality of it's real, but I'm going to tell you, hell is eternal separation from God if it is nothing else. That I know. That I know. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the Jesus that John says in John 1.18, for all of eternity was in the bosom of the Father. This Jesus who had never known anything but perfect, intimate fellowship with the Father for all of eternity past, for this moment, bearing our sin, literally suffers hell. But not just any hell. I heard one preacher say it this way. In that moment, because he took all of our sins, 
He was suffering a billion hells, all packed into one moment. What Jesus is saying, and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, just go read it. It was a common pattern for rabbis to invoke a whole psalm or a whole passage of scripture by just mentioning the first verse of that passage. Jesus is teaching, he's the rabbi, and he's saying it's all there, it's all there, and I'm the one that is suffering your rejection so that you can receive the full acceptance of God. That's the sermon on the cross. And then there's the scandal that follows. So we've set the scene, we talked about three different characters, talked about the executioners who were the impartial bystanders just performing their everyday task. We talked about the Jewish leaders who were the enemies, the haters of God who were mocking him. And we talked about God himself making his presence known. As the sermon ends, the scandal unfolds because we see those same three characters responding to what Christ has done. The first response we see is from the Jewish leaders. They mistakenly think that when Jesus is crying out, Eli, Eli, that he's referring to Elijah, they heard what they wanted, and that's primarily what I want you to see. Because they were so locked in to their perception that Jesus was never gonna be their Messiah. Not only did they miss that Jesus was the Messiah, but because of that, they missed that Elijah had already come in the person of John the Baptist. Jesus had made that clear to his followers after the transfiguration where Elijah appeared. They're going down from the mountain. They ask him about Elijah, and Jesus basically says, the one who was to represent Elijah, the forerunner, has already come, and they did what they wanted with him. And in the same way, they're gonna do what they want with me. So here were the religious leaders who had every opportunity to recognize that the Elijah, the one that the angel said would come in the spirit of Elijah, turning people's hearts back to God, which is what the prophecy of Elijah is. The one who would come was John the Baptist. He'd already come. He was the forerunner. Jesus was the Messiah. They missed that completely, and that left them with one choice because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. If he wasn't the Messiah, that makes him evil. That makes him someone worthy of hatred. So if you recognize their reaction and understand where they're coming from, it's the perfectly logical reaction. Because of what they had presumed, they had nothing but hatred for Jesus. So even when he cries out, Psalm 22:1, they hear what they're looking for. They're still looking for Elijah to come. They missed that he already came. And interestingly, they're still looking today. That was that fifth cup that I talked about last week. How ironic that today that fifth cup is poured in the modern Seder, hoping for the Elijah who would come and bring true lasting righteousness. When all along Jesus had come, the Elijah, the forerunner had come, they missed all that. And so they hear what they want to hear. That's what happens. Once you set your heart to disbelief, you're gonna see it all through a lens of disbelief. You'll find a way to work your way around and to spin it so even the truth that's right in front of your eyes looks like something completely different. Because you just decided you're not gonna believe. God shows up again. The veil is torn from top to bottom. God's saying the way has been made. 
the dead coming back to life, God saying that all those who are dead because of our trespasses and sin can be made alive because the one who had no sin became dead for us. God shows up. But the last one is the one I really want you to see. Remember we talked about those soldiers, those unbiased bystanders who got to sit back and watch and take in this whole scene, watch the clouds grow dim and watch Jesus cry out to his father, felt the earth shake, and they didn't even know Psalm 22. But all that they saw was enough. Matthew wants us to go through this whole journey to hear that shrieking of Jesus and to leave the cross with the same response. Surely he was the son of God. You know what Matthew's saying there? Is that all it takes is an unbiased look at the cross. All it takes is for you to step back from all your biases and prejudice and skepticism and just look at it. Look at the path through history that the prophets painted for thousands of years and how Jesus even on the cross points to that and says, do you see what I'm doing for you? If you come at that clean, if you come at that ignorant and you look at that, you'll be left in the same place as the centurion. Surely he is the son of God. Praise God. Even on the cross, he was still reaching for us to make a way to bring us to life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that even as you hung on the cross, rejected by your Father, for the joy set before you, you continue to endure, you continue to reach out to us in love, you pointed the way to your Father as you pointed us to your word. Thank you, Father, for reaching, for loving, for redeeming us. In Jesus' name, amen.